This is Pam Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air for the first time with David Loy, CEO of Leverage Brands. Welcome to the Pham Electric Ghost podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to let people know we are a featured podcast on the platform. You can see that icon up there. It says, uh, listen on Newsly. So if you use coupon code GHOST, you can get one month free premium subscription to check that out. That's an audio-only platform, and we are featured. We'll be on there later tonight. And so I want people to know that we do have your your um, URL of leveragebrands.co forward slash POD there. Now that will be fully clickable when we're published. Uh, right now it's not, but people can see that for the audio only people with leveragebrands.co forward slash POD. And again, thank you Perfect. for being on the Family Like the Ghost podcast. I'm happy to be here and thanks for listing that link. You know, it's uh, it's always nice to have a place where you can can plug some stuff. So I appreciate you putting that link up there. And really what people will see if they go to leveragebrands.co slash pod, they'll just see a video about marketing strategy. Our team loves having calls with people uh, to, to just have those conversations about what's working, what's not in the marketing world. So that's what's waiting for you. It's a free resource, but uh, would love to talk to uh, to anybody out there who wants to talk some marketing strategy. So that's what's available there. That's great. So um, one of the things we like to do is also just talk about like different different um, processes. Like when you're thinking about um, your, you know, your your strategies. And uh, one of the things we, that we wanted to talk about today is the topic is mistakes are encouraged, how to learn to lead and learn together. So that's kind of like the focus that we were going to talk about and bring back your website. But um, yeah, that's the, the prior, priority. But for 20 years, you've been working with brands um, and working with um, all, all kinds of people, like people like a leader, thought leaders, authors, speakers, online personalities. Maybe you can kind of give on people a background on what, what, how you engage with those people. Yeah, absolutely. So just a quick summary, because you said 20 years. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to go through all of the 20 years that I've been working in this field. But a quick summary yeah, is yeah. that I've, I've been working around people who have uh, platforms uh, for about 20 years now. Now, platform has become a word that society has used um, over the last 15 or 20 years a little bit differently than what it was used as uh, prior to that, you know, platform used to be uh, a stage. It used to be the thing that would elevate you in a crowd up above so that you could have uh, the opportunity to, to share a message or to say whatever it was that you wanted to say. And now that word has turned into um, something that's used online. And, and of course, most of us know that. But um, I've been around people who are authors or speakers, people who are paid to share their expertise um, I started in that field in 2004, and I've been working in it ever since. And um, the thing that I've seen constantly from those people is that they have a desire to help others. They have a desire to share their message, their expertise on a large scale with other people. And so my mission, and now the company uh, that I co-founded, uh, Leverage Brands, our mission is to help those folks find a way to get their message out to more people. And so uh, that's what we do behind the scenes at, at Leverage Brands. But, you know, you mentioned the topic that we're, we're kind of focused in on a little bit today. I'm a, I'm a little bit different when it comes to an entrepreneur or a leader. Uh, I love talking about my mistakes um, because I have always learned the most 
from the times where I've made the worst mistakes. I don't know if anybody else has learned a different way. Yeah. I hope that other people have, but for me, the most valuable stuff I've ever learned has come out of my mistakes. And so um, I'm eager to have mistakes because that means I'm learning and that means I'm getting better. And as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, I have tried to make that philosophy adaptable to my team, to my employees as well. I want them to know that mistakes are okay. Now you can't repeat the same mistakes over and over again, or else you're not mm -hmm. going to have a profitable business. But from the mindset of, I want people trying and uh, taking risks and trying different mm -hmm. things. And if that leads to a mistake, that's okay. And so that's kind of the purpose. And, and you mentioned it at the top, but that's kind of the purpose I think of, of this conversation is, is to talk a little bit about that philosophy and, and does that really work? And let's test it out. And if you hear me say something that you think is off, I would love to have a dialogue that, about that. But uh, but that's no, the summary of kind of what we do. It makes a lot of sense because I'm a, I have a couple of careers. I'm a podcaster. I'm a music producer. I'm a keyboardist, you know, sound designer. And I'm a software designer, right? So my yeah. day job, I do software design. So I totally understand. Like in software design, we, des we design stuff that, you know, it's never been built or redesigning re or reimagining stuff. So we make all kinds of mistakes. If you, you know, if you see software today as an example on your, an app on your phone, why are there all these updates? Because we made mistakes right. or we, or, or <laughs> what we didn't know. A lot of times it's what we didn't know. We couldn't anticipate every interaction. And so we missed something. And so we have lessons learned in our industry of software design. Now, after every project or even during our sprints, we go through, like, what did we learn here? What did we do wrong? Could we do a different approach? And we've got all kinds of management uh, methodologies. We've moved from waterfall to agile. We're doing all kinds of modern tech. We move from mainframes to blockchain to, like, we, we use whatever tool is going to work. And sometimes right. we have to still use old stuff like COBOL. Um, but, but, you know, it, it depends on who we're working with, like a big bank or an insurance company. But even in my music career, as a, as a creative person, like, you know, we as a songwriter, I probably write 100 songs and two of them really work or connect to the audience. <laughs> now, do I yes. really consider those mistakes? No, I kind of think it's like they're ladder, there's steps on the ladder to get into something that works. And the, everything I learned from all those things that were kind of, okay, that, that's a demo, that's a demo. That, that, that kind of creative process, being a creative person, I kind of have to live in that edge of maybe not knowing how to do something and that I'm not yeah. going to be perfect. And a lot of what we do are happy accidents. A lot of times we come up with something that's like, oh, and then we have to learn to like not to, to take advantage of that opportunity. So maybe you can kind of talk about like part of that, I think, is the happy accident and learning for something where you're like, oh, are you going to be agile enough to actually see something? and go right. with it or be so rigid that you don't. I love that. I'm writing it down actually right now. Happy accidents. I'm going to start using that terminology in in my uh in my office with my team as well. But but you're exactly right. I think it's just that willingness to embrace the fact that you are going to mess up. Uh there is no perfect strategy, there's no perfect implementation. Um I actually struggled with that as a young um, I was an employee for a while, but even as I became an entrepreneur and became a business owner, I still struggled with the reality that I was going to make uh, mistakes and I was going to make some costly mistakes. And I was going to make mistakes that uh, impacted not only my welfare, but then as a business owner, 
impacted my my employees as well because decisions I make are going to have a, an impact on them. And uh, it took me a while to really get comfortable with the fact that, yeah, that's going to happen and that's okay. But because it's going to happen, what's my mindset going to be? Is my mindset going to be frustration and anger that I messed up or I did it wrong? Or am I going to choose to learn and say, well, won't do that again. <laughs> We're not going to do it that same way again. Um, and that has really contributed to what we uh, we really base our strategy for our clients. We do digital marketing, but um, the strategy that I preach in all of our pitch meetings to all of our clients is test and iterate, test, iterate, test, iterate. And you test when you don't have any info, you don't have any data, you test something. And then once you have the data, then you iterate on it. And mm-hmm. you're exactly right. Those 98 songs that didn't make the cut, those are not mistakes. Um, those were part of the creative journey that got you to uh, create the best two out of that hundred. And it's probably going to be the foundation of the next hundred that you write. You know, the next hundred yeah. are going to be based on what you've learned from uh, those others as well. So uh, it's interesting to me, though, and I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, I feel like the younger generation has struggled with that a little bit. Um, Yeah. My my employees don't have, um, I don't know if it's fear of failure, but it's just, I I feel like I've had to really coach people on it is okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be wrong. And I don't know what that is. That's different. I'm 42. So I know that I'm not, I'm not, (laughs) I'm not the youngest guy. I'm not the oldest, but I am the oldest person on my team. I've got a team full of of 20 somethings, you know? So I feel like that's been part of my learning process as a leader is to learn how to coach these uh, young workforce employees into that mindset of it's okay. Uh, Have you encountered that at all? Yeah. I kind of, like I kind of get to it in music. Like I come from the days I'm I'm a 55 year old. Right. And I came from the days of non-digital you know, no digital audio workstation, you know, pro tools, that type of thing. So a lot of kids today, they, they, they have a problem where they want to make something sound perfect and they can't. But why I like to point out to people is just because you can make it perfect doesn't mean it's good. Because mm. I go point out like a, a, like the Rolling Stones that go on Main Street. That wasn't done on a DAW. Keith Richards is hard to track because he's a very unique individual guitar player. He's not perfect. He's not on the BPM. He's kind of off. And that's actually what why the stones sound good. I try to point out that sometimes not being perfect is exactly what you need. You know, you think about right. a guy like like Keith Richards or a guy like Keith Moon from The Who, that there's something about variability and not doing everything exactly correct. And that's where I think a lot of people forget <clears throat> that some of the great songs from the 60s and the 70s were just jam sessions that they recorded with the tape running. And they said, yeah, let's leave it that way with the errors in it, with like they got key changes that didn't expect. And a good example, and I won't go into music too much, but Herbie Hancock was playing with Miles Davis because he used to play with him. And he's playing piano and he hit the wrong note and he was freaking out. But then Miles Davis actually took that wrong key that wasn't the expected key and actually changed the song to match what Herbie was doing. And then later... Herbie was apologizing to Miles and Miles said, no, there's no problem because you you helped me write, right? I like the variability when you did that. I just changed, I just play it on the fly 
changed it and helped me with my creative process and we're writing a new song. Mm. I think people forget that. They forget that because you, you're afraid to try or you don't do it or you're scared of making a mistake, you don't see the fact that you can create the future with those things. And that's, that's a exactly lot of the right. future stuff is based on people being willing to be that creative and not hold back and kind of just let it flow, flow state. And a lot of people don't want to get so controlled, they, they stop the flow state. And I think that's a, that's a problem. <laughs> that it really is that's exactly that's a great example as well that's another thing i'm going to steal and use it in a team meeting so thank you you're giving me all kind of information that i can use in a team meeting coming up so i appreciate that but it really is interesting to, to see how uh and now that i'm old enough to say that you know when i was younger i feel like my generation had a slightly different approach but that's also because we were up against a different set of circumstances things weren't moving nearly as fast uh, with technology uh, 25 years ago, you know, when I was in high school. Um, and today they have to move faster so, uh, than yeah. we ever did. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I don't, uh, I don't blame them. I don't think there's anything wrong with the generation. It's just trying to figure out how do you, how do you coach them to keep thinking, uh, to keep thinking towards their best, the best version of themselves. And, and um, hopefully we're, yeah. we're making some progress in that category, but it, it's certainly a challenge. I always try to tell people if somebody comes to me with a demo, right? And what they tend to do is want to clone what they think I want. They mm. either clone something like I wrote or clone something that's popular. Yeah. And I, I come up to them and I tell them, like, you sh show me the song you're scared to show anybody. Right? <laughs> show me the, the piece of work that you, you're so fearful of. That that's the one I want to hear. Because I right. think that is your authentic self. And I'd rather work on making that track sound like the best version of you rather than trying to clone 20 other people that are already out there because you're not going to be yeah. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift's already out there, right? So why don't you try to be yourself and we'll find what's unique about you and push that. A lot of people are scared to do that because in a world where you can clone and sample and use AI and grab stuff that already existed and just tweak it, there's, you people are, are afraid of original thought or original work. Mm. And I'm kind yeah. of a pusher of like, I like original ideas. I'm kind of an indie yes. guy, you know, an indie yeah. song guy. So I, I'm looking for people who have authentic ideas, not what's in the top 10, top 20, top 30, probably the bottom 500. Cause I'm looking for the stuff that's interesting to me. Right. That, that, yeah. And I think, yeah. And I think you nailed it. It's that preserving authenticity in an age of technology that's trying to, to squash it. You know, uh, and, and that's probably a generalization that technology is trying to squash authenticity. But I think that is something that creatives are rubbing up against right now is how do how do you stay authentic when you have the option to cut corners, go faster and have technology do it for you? <laughs> you know, um, but yeah. I'm exactly I, I'm, I'm thinking the same way. I want authentic, creative ideas brought to the table. Uh, songs that are new and different. Um, I, I don't want, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Um, is mimic is uh, the, the best yeah. form of flattery or, or whatever the phrase is. I forget how the, yeah. what, what that's, which is fine, but that's not progress. That is, yeah. that is reproducing something that has already existed. That's not creating anything new. So it's flattering and it's kind to do a cover and try to sound exactly like the stones that's a tribute to them, but that's not creating anything new and different. That's not new. Um, it's, yeah, it's not new. It's like a Beatle clone. Like it's the monkeys right. versus the Beatles. 
and the yeah. Yardbirds is like all the bands that sounded kind of like the Beatles. They're in the zone. They're a little bit different, but the whole point is like you know, Pink Floyd doesn't sound like that. Pink Floyd is something right. different. The yeah. is something different. Genesis is yeah. something different, right? So the idea is that you really need to clone that much. And and the problem is with AI and all these other tools and sampling, we get a lot of people that just like go and clone things, and that's fine. But like my whole idea is like, okay, I'll give an example of something I think is a better uh, like a comparison. Like it's Stevie Ray Vaughan playing Voodoo Child versus Hendrix. Hendrix mm. is the original guy that wrote it. His version is this cosmic thing, psychedelic thing. It's kind of rough. If you listen to the drums, they're not stable. They're very kind of very fusion. You listen to Stevie Ray's, it's a Texas bluesman's version. The drums are tighter. It's not as loose as Mitchell. And it, actually, they both stand with each other. And if you listen to them, they're not exactly the same. They're actually different. It's one of Stevie is an interpretation of the original done in a slightly different way. It's 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 Texas blues versus right. cosmic psychedelia. I think that's <laughs> then, what people are losing. They're losing that. They're thinking they want to go note for note Hendrix. And I don't think that's right. what you really want to do. Well, and then to take that a step further, how many people were then influenced by what Stevie did to then go create their own twist on the Texas blues versus the psychedelic? So, I mean, yeah. it's just, you need to have that continual uh, effort to, to keep making progress. And that's how, that's how we keep moving forward. I think the application, and you've talked about music, so I'll talk about, you know, our wheelhouse a little bit, how this applies. But the, for us in building, we build online you know, platforms, help people reach the most people that they can possible through websites, social media, podcasts, uh, a variety of different ways. But the application for us is that, you know, when podcasts really came on uh, the scene, uh, gosh, that's been almost 20 years ago now that it really started uh, to, to get going. Um, there wasn't 11 different ways for you to broadcast a podcast simultaneously. It was, yeah. you know, I'm going to host this audio file on my website or I'm going to put it on uh, Apple's, you know, iPods even before uh, yeah, yeah. iPhones were really going. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the only way that podcasts were going. Well, now, you know, fast forward, you, you've you got, uh, obviously, it's still called a podcast, but podcasts today are distributed and, and consumed in way different ways than they were when yeah, they started. Well, multiple and, platforms. Yeah, right. yeah I started, and so the started yeah. audio. Yeah, right. audio and was so the only thing. Yeah, it's the only option. Uh, there wasn't even uh, the thought that this could become an audio and video and multi-platform streaming thing, but uh, it evolved. So, the way that I use, you know, the way that I apply what we're talking about here to what we're doing is the things that worked. Um, 5, 10, 20 years ago when it comes to building a brand uh, aren't the same things that are going to work for you to build your brand today. And I think what you're doing with the podcast and, and being able to get it out on so many different platforms is an example of the, the willingness that you have to have as a content creator to adjust and iterate and continue to do so. Uh, you can't get locked into any one approach um, you have to be studying and being willing to try new things, uh, just like we were talking about with the music side of things. So um, I, I actually like I'm going to keep calling. I'm going to try to call them happy accidents instead of mistakes. Mistake sounds negative. So yeah. maybe I'll just keep calling <laughs> it happy accidents. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think that's how it applies to what we do. It's interesting because I started on a platform in 2016 called Spearman. It was an mm. app. and It was just using your iPhone and I would talk into it. 
and you couldn't do guests, you would just do kind of mo- like a monologue. And then, then eventually it opened up so you could do guests. And this guy brought me in from New York and we did a show together talking about music. We did it for like six months. And then we said, oh, that he couldn't do it anymore. And then I went to Instagram and started just pitching, hey, I'll interview independent bands, emerging bands, and just do it for free. And so I did that for many years. And then Anchor FM came and then StreamYard came and then all these other platforms came. And I just eventually used all my my studio here to actually you know be able to convert all this stuff I have for music and use it for a video. And I said, well, you know, I can use the mics, I can use the cameras and stuff that I use for music videos and do it for a podcast. And, you know, it, tools came along, all kinds of capabilities. And initially I only talked to musicians and then I opened it to poets and authors then filmmakers. And then I started talking to CEOs and life coaches and, and then I, I became very expansive. And the funny thing was my music label was called expansive sound because I'm not mm-hmm. stuck in one genre, I do jazz, I right. do rock, I do punk, I do everything. And I said, why not do that with the podcast? Be very expansive and then maybe kind of use music as a thread to tie things together that are disparate. And that's mm-hmm. what I've done. And so in the last two years, I've, you know, interviewed people who aren't musicians and people who are just creatives or create right. their own company. And it's, it's worked. It's kind of threaded a needle where people told me, well, you should, you should got to be narrowly focused. And it's actually worked the opposite for me to be kind of more expansive focused. And, just well, a different and I think, mindset. yeah, but I think <laughs> the thing I heard in your story is you did start off as narrowly focused and then yeah. you expanded. I think that the trap that I see a lot in this creative space is people starting with expanded. Um, if you had started talking to everybody from day one, it, I don't know that you would have ended up, you know, in this same situation, but you started with a focus. And then as you mastered and um, covered all of the topics in that focus, then you kept stepping out and stepping out. You know, I think it is, it reminds me of, um, I believe it's Picasso. I'm not an art guy, so I could be getting this mm-hmm. wrong, but it was Picasso or one of those contemporaries yeah. who you look at some of their later work and it's it's very abstract and people who don't really know art look at it and say, why is this worth so much? Uh, I could do that. I, you know, a lot of naive people think they could just throw paint on the canvas and come out like a Picasso. And the thing that a lot of folks don't know is that he started mastering traditional art. Uh, He was a a master artist of what was considered at that time to be the standard um, uh, classical works. Yeah. Yeah. And he became a master of that, which allowed him the freedom to, To like you're talking about, to keep going expansive and and to step into the next thing that was going to be creative for him and of course, ended up impacting the art world for generations and will continue to do so. But I think that's the part that a lot of folks overlook is uh, he only was able to step outside the lines once he mastered everything inside the lines. <laughs> you know, he, he, he uh, yeah, started with focus of, and then expanded. It's kind of like your expertise. When you're a musician, you know, I learned, I started on classical. I started on yep. winds, their piano. And then I you know, got into other forms, but it's kind of like knowing how that, that mastery of the classical form allowed me to go into jazz and a punk and rock and hip hop and heavy metal. And like, because if you know the, the core basics, 
then you can branch into other places. And so that's, yeah. so then, you know, then you, you just kind of go and what, what today seems to be the, the thing is people like the cross genre in music. Mm-hmm. They mix country with hip hop, mix psychedelic with rock and mix, mix it's cross genre colliding. A lot of things are colliding with different things. And that's how you actually move forward. Like the people who are actually doing, you know, jazz with punk and jazz with hip hop and, you know, do bring a little, you know, rock into this and the country into that. That's how you progress. And some people will want to stay. Like if you get the purest, they'll start yelling. <laughs> they'll start saying, oh, that's not folk. That's not punk. That, you know, you put a keyboard on it. So we won't, we don't want to hear it. But look, Eddie Van Halen, when he picked up a keyboard and did jump, heavy metal heads were like, oh, you can't do that. But, but then he did, right? right? And then it's like, oh, that worked. It, it worked. It was like, it was like, but people would tell you, oh, I hate that. They, they don't, they don't want to try something different. They want to stay. Right. It's like, how are you going to experiment if you did? You know, Eddie, Eddie got bored just playing guitar. He wanted to get into something else. So he, you know, he, he wanted to try to layer his sound to have different colors. And as an artist, you you tend to want to go beyond what you're capable of. You'll, you'll start to jump into things. And yeah, that's what you people forget. Going. You'll make mistakes because yeah. you don't, you know, he, you know, he doesn't, he didn't know the keyboard as good as the guitar, but, but, you know, that's what that, that he's willing to try it, you know, and it, that's what you get like a Pete Townsend. I mean, why does the who sound so good? Because they actually did that too. They actually got key. Pete got into sense and they get things like Bob O'Reilly won't get fooled again because he, he's known as a great synthesis because he did things that keyboard players wouldn't do. He approached the synthesizer in a way a keyboardist wouldn't. And so you yeah. get things like Barbara O'Reilly that you wouldn't hear because a keyboardist wouldn't, wouldn't have thought to do it that way. So that's what's good about creativity is, is, is going in a different bound. So I think that the challenges people have to have today is that being willing to you know get outside their lane, get outside their comfort zone and try something. Like you said, you know, the failure that's is exactly not right. bad. Yeah, you exactly. And, <laughs> and I think that leads to to the obstacle. Uh, you know, a lot of folks might be sitting there saying, well, you can't you can't always and only keep pushing the envelope without there being some, you know, kind of baseline for expectations. And baseline, as an entrepreneur, yeah. I think that's become my next challenge is to really master continuing to encourage people that it's OK to make mistakes, but also continuing to raise the bar as they make more as they make mistakes and keep learning, I have to keep raising the bar for expectations. Um, We we have to, Mm -hmm. you know, business isn't a business unless it it is um, uh, making money. You know, I guess there's, you know, some, some giant companies have, have gone bankrupt and and disproven (laughs) this, but uh, you know, to stay in business, we need to keep making money. And so there has to be a level of expectation that I give to, Hey, these are the basics. These are the things that I need you to absolutely crush. And hopefully those things, those expectations are really only 70 or 80% of what somebody's time and bandwidth is. And then they have the rest of that margin to push to test and experiment and yeah, push the boundaries, keep learning. It's one of the reasons why at our company, we have a a learning stipend. Uh, I'm really big on learning. Uh, I read constantly. Yeah, I read constantly. I take a bunch of courses. Um, I want my team to do that. I don't want to go back to school. I graduated college in 03 mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm never going back, but I want to keep learning the way that I learn best, which is audiobooks, actually, you know, physical books mm-hmm. and courses. Um, but we actually pay for our team 
uh, we have a, a monthly stipend where I'll pay for people to buy books. Uh, they all have Audible accounts. I'll pay for them to training. go through courses yeah, that yeah. they're interested in that relate to their job. But also, I will also pay for somebody to go take a guitar class. Uh, if they're just passionate about doing that, I want them to feel like they're learning and making progress in their life because I feel like if I allow them that freedom, they will give me their, their best selves as an employee. And so really big on learning. Um, but I'm curious, is that a are you seeing that uh, eagerness to learn uh, in your field on a regular basis? I guess you kind of have to be eager to learn yeah. to be in what you're yeah. doing. What we're doing is like, you know, people, there's some people who stay narrowly focused and say, like I'm a four piece rock band, you know, play in the bar and they keep on playing Aerosmith all the time. And that's fine. But there's a lot of people that you get into tech, you know, behind me, I've got nothing but like synthesizers. And I've got old school 1970, you know, analog. And then I got the modern stuff. The difference is the old stuff is analog, like Moogs and roads and stuff like that. And it's very old circuitry and it's like a lot of, a lot of sound design. So you have to go and design your own sound. You don't have a preset. You have to actually build your sound. And every time you write a song, you're building a custom sound. Where today, a lot of people would just go to a soft synth, go to a plug-in, and just pick what they, what what's already exist. Maybe they find it, but they don't actually take time to actually develop. So I always try to push people, like, why don't you make your own tone? Why don't you make your own kick drum? Why don't you make your own drums? Why don't you don't just sample somebody else's drums? take the tech. And then I was like, even if you sample somebody else, go and take it through a, 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 a circuit and, and reverse it, right? Or turn yeah. it upside down or turn it inside out and then change it and just totally re rearrange it. So you took something, but then you rearrange it so much it doesn't even sound like what it was. So that then gives you a creative exercise where you're kind of going into this zone of pure creativity rather than just cloning. And so there's right. a lot of tech that will help you do that. And there's a lot of tech that will help you just clone. I'm kind of on the side. Well, I've kind of pushed people to design something unique rather than just cloning what exists. And there's, you know, there's tech on both sides, but you know, that's, that's what, what you choose to do. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're choosing to do something, right. I mean, it's, you know, uh, as, as long as the, the, the default attitude is not complacency and, uh, repetitive, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, as long as it's not that, as long as we're choosing to move forward and try, uh, I think that's the the message that I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, younger creatives can can really adapt and hold on to. I mean, you could use like AI, you could take like AI, right? And an AI in no. a studio format, one use I like is like, okay, when it comes to engineering, which is like taking your sound in and changing it. There's all these different things you can do with your mix. With AI, you can say, hey, run my song through a mix that sounds like Fleetwood Mac rumors. The same settings that would have been on a board <laughs> that Lindsey Buckingham was using on Fleetwood Mac rumors, right? And then go run it like the Who ran it. Then go run it like like Sticks ran it. And then run through all these different variations and give me you know a minute clip so I can hear what each one sounds like. That to me is a really cool use of AI. I didn't go and actually use it to create the song. I'm using it to mix the song, to give me different things that I couldn't have done without going to different studios. And then it will go and give me those sound profiles. And then I can decide which ones I want to use. And I might mix and match them. I might say, well, a little bit of Fleetwood, a little bit of Sticks, a little bit of the Who. And then that creates something new. 
So yeah. that's a really cool user user tool that allows you to do something because it has this capability of being this assistant to help you do something in a way that you probably wouldn't have done. And I think in like advertising and stuff, they can give you prompts, they can give you variations, they can build like multiple landing pages. So then yep. you've got like a hundred different landing pages that you don't have to have one guy try to code. You know, you, <laughs> it will go and do, you know. Exactly. And then you measure the conversion or the interaction and decide which one's working best and uh, and then hopefully iterate on that one as well. But I think you're exactly right. I think the, the whole AI conversation, uh, at least in our space, has people on both sides. I mean, I guess in every industry, it probably has people on both sides. But I'm kind of one of those that is is throwing up some reminders that I apply to other areas of life that I think apply to AI as well, uh, it's very rare that something is on, is actually on one of the extremes. So right now with AI, you've got people that are saying, this is the worst thing ever. Uh, yeah, we, we've opened yeah, Pandora's yeah. box. Uh, it's going to destroy the world. And then on the far end of the other side, you've got people saying, this is the best thing ever. We'll never have to create anything on our own again. And, uh, you know, work will be so much easier. And, no stress and all that stuff. And I'm thinking very rarely uh, is, is it ever on the extremes. And so yeah, it doesn't do it for you. You know, you st if, if you're doing trig, you can use your calculator, but it doesn't do the whole thing. If you're doing yeah. calculus, it doesn't do the whole thing. It can help right. you with very complicated algorithms. If you're a physicist, you want a nice scientific calculator, but you still have to have that physicist mindset. That's you right. still have to have a math, you know, in our programming, we got all kinds of tools that can do yeah. stuff, but we still have hand coders because they still got that human factor. And if exactly. there's something we can use a bot to replicate code that's boring and we don't have to go and farm it out, we'll get it to go and replicate code so we don't have to do boring, stupid things that are, are, don't make sense for somebody to go and have to do something that's very menial. So I think for menial tasks that don't make a lot of sense for a human being to be doing but for really thought provoking, like the creative process in itself, I'm kind of against using it to write the whole script. Right. Right. Or to write the whole song. It's like, help me with a prompt yeah. to give me an idea, but I'm still going to write the song. I'm like, don't go and replace the whole song with 100% AI. I just, I think that's lazy. I think, yes. you know, that, that that's my opinion. Like, not that you can't do it. It's just like, like it's what happened to people when they sampled. You get an ice right. ice baby that takes a Queen Bowie song and takes the whole thing and just puts something over it. Or you get a, a band like De La Soul that actually did very complicated sampling and sounds like something new. So you totally can go different. one yeah. way or the other. I think I think if you right. use it, you can be very creative or you be, could be kind of lazy creative. And it's like what you choose yeah. to do. That's a great a way to phrase it. And for us, again, dealing with a lot of authors, uh, I have heard authors talk about how helpful it can be in terms of research. So let's say you're writing a period piece, you know, somebody's writing a novel about uh, 1600s England, and you want to write the most accurate depiction of April in 1643 in England. Yeah. And yeah, in you seconds, right you can have exact, you know, details on the weather and what people would have been wearing and what else was going on uh, around the world. Um, so there, you know, things that would have taken hours or, or even longer previously have now been condensed. And that, like you said, can help make your specific goal of creating that book or that song 
uh, that can inform it, but it's not going to write the best version of it for you. <laughs> you know, you still have to yeah. get in there and do the work, you know? Yeah, you yeah. still go to the whiteboard and you still have a session and you go run the, run the, run the, the diagrams to figure something out. You still want to have those kind of open, you know, JAD session to go and say, hey, well, how are we going to do this and put the stuff on the board? You know, taking the post-it notes and putting them on the board. You yep. can do that in the computer, but people still like to physically put them on the board. Yeah, for and sure. when you're in a meeting because they want they want to promote somebody to actually contribute. Right. And if it's all on the computer, you might not contribute as much as if you're physically in a room with somebody and engaging them in a human way. So I think that human interaction, they, not that the, 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 you know, you could do a bunch of prompts and get the same kind of whiteboard coming from AI. Or you could come from your, your employees' experiences that maybe have a little more insight, you know. Yeah. So that, you know, it depends. And that do. keeps them that keeps them part of the process as well. You want to empower them to participate and engage and feel like they've got something to really contribute. And so, uh, but yeah, you're right. I feel like there's um, there are some great uses for AI, uh, and those of us who are planning to use it for good, uh, let's do it. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm not going to spend the too Terminator. much time worrying about the things I can't control that other people are doing. Yeah, the Terminator scenario, Terminator Two, Terminator Three. That, that's like that's right. like you know. Yeah, it's all, yeah. always something, you know, the science fiction people predicted like, you know, ideas like these big atomic bombs, you know, early science fiction predicted doomsday devices, right? And right. Then we have something. There are there exactly. like chemical warfare, biological warfare, atomic things. Like, those are real. They were in science fiction. They actually are real. They can cause problems. You got to depend on people having some common sense and sense of humanity and sense of like uh, of, of boundaries. Like if we we have laws, we have norms, we have reasons why, right? So if you do something that causes a lot of damage to humanity, well, that's not that positive. Just because you can do it doesn't mean, yeah, you can make a hydrogen bomb. Does that mean you use it? No. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Well, so and the focus on the good so uses. You have to think yeah. about like, yeah, yeah. I mean, AI could be a hydrogen bomb to certain things. If you right. do it wrong, that doesn't, so it means that like, do you actually use it that way and let it do that to society or you, you think it out and say, let's use it like this. And then you see places where it's actually the problem with it, it can do things so fast that, that that's the problem. It's like if you do something very quickly, faster than human beings can react to it, that's where it could cause damage. If you don't think about the consequences, then everything is consequences. Everything you do has a consequence. People go and say, well, it doesn't. Yeah, like it does. Like, like, you know, so you have to think about that. And I think as long as people keep that in mind, there'll be creative people, you know, whatever jobs go away, there'll be new jobs, but you have to have people that can do those jobs. Right. So, and know, people who can critically that, think like, from one step to another yeah. to, to actually get the job done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think the problem is we had societies that didn't really push create uh, critical thinking because you didn't yeah. have to, to make the money to live. And the problem with the future is there's a lot of jobs where it's not just pushing a button in the factory and moving this from that. It's actually using your head. And if your schooling didn't only said that 10% of the public need to think that way, right? Well, actually, maybe 90% of the public needs to think that way now. That's, that's the right. problem. And yep. so that that has to be the problem that people have to identify and actually say that's real and solve that because that the AI is going to make that apparent very fast what you have yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I was actually just talking with my business partner last week about 
I feel like one of our biggest challenges over the next 12 months is going to be intentionally training people to think critically because it's not, it doesn't feel as innate uh, as it was. I don't want that to sound egotistical, but I just feel like without technology, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, I feel like I, I had to learn creative thinking in a different way than um, the, some younger people are today. And so I want to keep that passion for um, critical thinking because I know that it helps our business. I know that it helps our relationships. So just trying to instill that in people that it might not be as um, not, it might not come as natural to them. So uh, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to do that better as a leader and as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the corporate world, it's like, it's been like cubicles, everybody doing a task that you can measure that's kind of uniform. But the problem is the future is it's very individual uh, capabilities where there's a lot of uniqueness. So the problem about the future is it's not that assembly line. It's not that cubicle assembly line. It actually needs to be where you only had 10% of the people having that capability, like the artists, like the creatives, the mathematicians, the physicists. There's a very small amount of people doing that. Now we need to actually expand that set of capabilities to to the person who would have been in the cubicle, the person who would have been on the assembly line and get them back to more like an artisan before the industrial age of people who were artisans and they built their own things. And people bought very customized things that people had a lot of skill. That kind of creativity is going to actually happen because the modern world assembly lines can build individual things that are very different. It doesn't have to all be uniform. So there's a lot of capabilities. You have micro, micro, you know, opportunities where people with like five people can create something that has all this capability that a hundred people could have done, which means that they can be very individualistic in what they offer. And so we can have a lot more, way more opportunities for entrepreneurs and then people who who are artisans to come up with unique products that satisfy individual human needs. And I think that's where the future uh, is, is that yeah. And, and those things never would have been possible, you know, had, had this, yeah. had people not continue to expand like what we were talking about earlier. That's uh yeah. yeah just I think learning exactly that right. maybe, maybe you're not going to be working for somebody. <laughs> you might be working for yourself, but right. or you're being working okay. with very small, <laughs> smaller organizations that yeah. have a lot of capability because of AI and robotics to be able to do stuff that five or 10 people couldn't have done. Right. And That's so exactly right. that, 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 that's where, you know, you'll be marketing these really micro companies, like the micro level, uh, you know, industrialist or entrepreneurs. Is, I think that's what you see. Like everybody's their own brand. Like I'm my own yep. brand, you know. And so that's the future of the world is like micro branding for small people, small groups yep. or individuals. That's exactly right. And I hope that that's what we're doing at Leverage Brands. That's I'm glad you said it. I didn't even tell you to say that, but you said exactly what we say to a lot of our clients, which is everybody is a brand, whether you know it or not, whether you want to be or not, you are a brand. Yes, you are a person, but also as you're being perceived uh, by the public, uh, everybody's a brand. And so um, when you think of it that way, uh, it just allows you to separate yourself a little bit from it. Uh, and, and make decisions on behalf of that brand as opposed to that person. But I hope our team is fairly small. We've got eight full-time employees and then six contractors. So it's, you know, 12 to 15 people. But I feel like we're doing 
exactly what you just said. This group of 12 to 15 people is doing the work today that used to take 40 people to, to pull off. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because we're using technology, using uh, some things that just haven't always been available and, and it's condensed down a little bit and um, it, it seems to be working, but I love what you said about everybody's brand. You are a brand and you are uh, crushing it. So I'm, uh, I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one out there preaching that message that everybody's a brand, but yeah, that, that's really cool. So how do you get brand loyalty? I know there's all kinds of like marketing techniques because a lot of times what you want to do is like, you don't want to always have to bring in the new customer. You want to be able to keep that current customer, right? Keep them happy and have them keep on buying product or buying services. So how do you Man. get that person to be loyal, right? It's so tough. And you're right. That is crucial. I think that has become the thing that everybody's trying to figure out. You know, just like you said, it's great to have new people come into your funnel or come into your sphere or join your tribe, however you want to say it. It's great to have those new people. But the the question is, okay, now that you've got them, what are you going to do to hang on to them? What are you going to do to actually have them continue to engage? And I think the thing that was happening most frequently uh, 10 to 15 years ago was um, we're just going to keep making our products known and keep trying to sell people um, on things. And that worked for a little while. But I think the thing that it makes brands sticky now is value. We always try to look at it from the point of view of what's in it for them. What's in it for the person that I'm trying to instill loyalty in? What value am I delivering? How consistently are they going to get that value? What's the frequency? Why should they care? And so if you can come up with good answers to those questions of what's in it for them, why should they care? When can they expect something from me? If you can come up with really good answers to those questions, I feel like you're at the beginning of creating loyalty. But for me, a couple of things really stand out as uh, the top things to be thinking about for, for brand loyalty, especially if you're delivering content online. Um, this might not apply as, as much to to goods, physical goods, but, um, or products, but delivering content online, if you want to build brand loyalty, I think it's uh, telling people who you are, what they can expect from you. And then I know this will blow your mind, but actually delivering on those two things, you know, like if you tell them who you are <laughs> and then tell them what to expect, that's one thing. But if you can actually deliver on who you are and what they can expect, then you'll already separate yourself from so many people. Because the thing I see so often is people try to say, oh, I am this, I'm a podcaster, I'm an author, I'm an influencer, whatever. Um, and here's what you can expect from me. But then they, they struggle to deliver. They struggle to be consistent with it. They struggle to be um, valuable in their material. Some people get stuck in this pattern of, hey, I'm going to deliver content whether it's valuable or not, I'm just going to tick the box of saying I delivered content today. Uh, that doesn't really help brand loyalty. Um, so I know that's oversimplifying things, but if you can come mm -hmm. up with those answers, um, here's who I am, here's what you can expect from me, and then you can actually deliver consistently on it. People want uh, reliability. Um, uh, they want consistency. And consistency is often confused with uh, constancy, and there's a big difference between yeah. constant and yeah. consistent. Uh, if consistent for you, let's say you're building up, uh, you're building up your, um, well, I'll take your stuff, for example. Uh, I know you do, uh, you're very consistent in what you're doing in terms of, of delivery. But if somebody else out there right now is trying, is thinking about starting a podcast, but for them, consistent is only 
once every two weeks. They can only do a podcast once every two weeks or once a month. That's okay. Now it's going to go slower, but if that person can consistently deliver that content every two weeks, they start to build up a following that knows, Hey, regardless of what happens, I'm going to have one episode every two weeks. Then you can at least start to build up um, trust. You're trying to build trust and, and trust translates to loyalty. Um, And it's okay. If for you at the beginning, you're, consistency doesn't look like everybody else's. You can come up with what consistent means for you and test it out and see if it works. And if it doesn't, guess what? Iterate. Uh, Just like we talked about earlier, you know, figure out a way to do it differently, deliver it differently. Um, But I think those are the beginning steps that we coach people on in terms of brand loyalty and just trying to remind people that it is not, um, it can be influenced by what you want as the content creator. Um, it can be influenced by that. But the most important thing is what does my target audience want? What is my audience looking for? And can I deliver it? Am I willing to deliver it? Um, and a lot of people get into this not knowing the answer to either of those questions. And then six months down the road, they're, they don't know, well, why, why don't I have anybody following me? And then it's because you haven't answered the key questions yet. Uh, you don't know what you're trying to offer people. So, um, it's not an easy solution. It usually takes a lot of time, but uh, but I do think that that building brand loyalty is worth somebody's time to really sit down and answer those questions and be clear on what you're doing. Yeah, you have to have that kind of value proposition to your audience, you know, in terms of like initially, like if you're an artist, it's kind of hard because like it's based on whether or not the people like your art. Right. So right. you can be consistent and you might have like a, a like a certain max of, of people who are into your style. Right. So what you find is like worldwide, you might have a pretty good impact, but like in a certain niche areas, certain areas, you might not. Like if you're only looking at the American audience, you might not have be impactful, but you might actually attract a Pacific audience or attract an audience in Central America. Like you never know. Um, and That's so. Right. You sometimes you just have to see where are you actually impacting. Like with our sometimes on music, I get a lot of people outside the U.S. that like my stuff, like in Iceland and Netherlands and Norway, and you know, because it's it's like it's experimental. So there's certain places like Berlin and places like that that they're into that, but like like my t- hometown, no, they're not into it. <laughs> if I just went by my hometown in in New Hampshire. Like oh I'm not gonna kick it, but if I if I then look it further out, like oh it does, in certain places, so it's kind of like like you have to kind of understand like where where you have an impact, and I think you just have to look at the data and figure it out. But and that's the stuff that you wouldn't you wouldn't know intuitively. You wouldn't know until you got it out to all of those different places. You wouldn't have enough info to tell you that hey. Uh, this is really taken off in Berlin, but in Mexico, they don't like it at all. <laughs> like you yeah, wouldn't yeah. have that info until you got it to both places. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I think that's part of the process as well as people just realizing getting it to both places for you, I assume, you and I haven't talked about this, but I assume that didn't happen overnight. You know, it took you some time yeah. to get to the point where you had enough info to make uh, to, to draw these conclusions. And a lot of people don't know that it takes time to, to get enough info to inform your next steps and your next tests and your next iterations on what it is that you're doing. And that's okay. You can't rush some of these things. So um, 
but that's okay. That that's part yeah. of the process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's your distribution networks. Like, if you're actually working with products or services, like, how far out can you go? Like, if your distributor can only reach the U.S., right? right. Or do you have a distributor that can reach, like, everywhere? Like, I've got some distributors with my with my brand that I can reach global, and I can go and look at analytics right now. I can go onto some of my platforms. And I can see right now where my numbers are. I don't got to wait yeah. like a month. I can go and see right now <laughs> what's kicking. And that's very important. And musicians, we didn't always have that. Yeah. We, we we had to wait for the record label to give me like three months, six months. I wouldn't even know. Right. So so now we, we as independent operators using different distribution networks, we can immediately find our fans. We can immediately yeah. connect with fans directly and then kind of nurture those fans. And so it's like I think that is the capability in business, maybe is getting to that level with some of the capabilities. I'm not sure. But um I think yeah. it, it might be. Well, and you mentioned a key word there. Uh, I can't remember if I said it earlier as well, but we say the word nurture quite a bit here um, behind the scenes for what we're doing, because it really is, uh, it's a process to nurture someone from, I've never heard of you, I've never heard of your music. It's a process to nur to nurture that person from not knowing you at all to becoming, hopefully, a, a diehard loyal fan. Um, and and yeah. the only way that that nurturing happens is over time and intentionality, communication, uh, you're sharing um, with them and giving to them, not asking from them. And so I think that's where, you know, nurture in terms of brand building is the same as nurture in a relationship. You know, if you want to build a relationship with a significant other or with a, a, your best friend, you know, it takes time and communication, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And intentionality. Um, and it takes giving. It takes that giving spirit of I'm giving of myself for you. I'm not asking of anything else for you, but in doing so, it builds a relationship. And so um, that nurture piece is is big. And uh, it's it's frustrating for some people because they're like, well, that sounds like it's going to take a while. And I'm like, yes, it, it will. <laughs> and Just that's okay. It takes a while to build an audience. You know, you, right. you build an audience over time. You know, over time, we got over like, over 40,000 people who have actually listened to our podcast. We got over 250,000 people who have listened to our music. But, yeah. you know, that's not super, that's like not like Beyonce. But you have to understand, like, I'm not going to live at that level. Right? Like, so if I don't try to live like that, Yep, I can actually survive on forty thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand. It depends right. on if you over, if you over, you know, if you don't understand where, where you are. Like a lot of us in, as a independent artist, we have to realize like we might only have fifty thousand fans. Yeah. We might only have you know two hundred fifty thousand, whatever. But you can still build a relationship with that small level. And if you own your masters and you own your stuff and you sell that merch and you sell, you can actually do okay. You yep. don't have to, if you go with the big labels, they only give you like 10 cents, but you're with the big label, but they don't give you, I mean, you don't own the master. So like, it's a different situation. So you got to understand, well, how much you own yep. and how much you, as an independent operator, what, what do you get? So if you start to understand your widget and how much of it do you get to keep? <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> then, yeah. Then you've got all the information to make your, your next steps. And I think what you're talking about there is important as well. Probably a good place for us to end on. I know you're, you're, we're on a timeline here, but 
there, there's so many things that are perceived as being an overnight success when in reality, uh, and you know this being in the music business, most every time an overnight success was 10 years in the making or longer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it took yeah. 10 years of hard work behind the scenes for this yeah, person who's grinding before you, the public, all of a sudden thought that they were an overnight yeah. success. <laughs> yeah, you suddenly so, see them and they've been working. You know, Lady Gaga does that. She was, you nobody knew. She had went through many variations. David Bowie was that. Nobody even yeah. saw him in the mid 60s yeah. and 66. Like, you, nobody knew who he was. Uh, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, building, but uh, thank you again for being on the show. I hate to cut it short, but we, it, it's been a great conversation. I want people to check out leveragebrands.co forward slash pod. Again, that's going to be fully clickable and, uh, people will be able to connect with you there. And, uh, thank you for being on the podcast. It's been a great conversation. Ab absolutely happy to be here. Thanks for your time. And, uh, yeah, reach out leveragebrands.co slash pod. Uh, would love to have a conversation if anybody else wants to continue the conversation around marketing strategies. So thanks again. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a good night. You too.